Scuba Obsessed, a weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 359 is recorded live February 22nd, 2018. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where we have a large abundance of water. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, thank you. Glad to be here. And we also have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? I'm doing most excellent after a fine long day of uh, skiing and playing on the outside. Uh, checking out the nasty water and everything. <laughs> it's been an interesting week here, but... The- uh, how, how are you doing, Darren? I am doing great. Uh, I'm 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 doing better than most, uh, depending on when you listen to this or where you are. But this has made national news. I picked up some of the articles earlier today, all the way from San Francisco. Uh, that's the way you get around some of those paywalls on the on the news sites. It's all syndicated, so if you can't get it from your your local newspaper, just put it into Google, and they'll tell you who's uh, syndicating and showing it. Uh, but we've got flooding going on in uh, Berrien County, Michigan. Uh, We had heavy rains. I haven't heard the amount of rain, but it rained really heavy for two days. Uh, And that was preceded by a warm snap where what little bit of snow we had all turned to fog and started to melt right away. But uh, that rain that came down came down in the St. Joe Water Basin which goes from uh, southwest Michigan down into the northern part of Indiana, then back up to uh, south-central Michigan. So all that rain was all going into the same watershed stream system, and we had some flooding. Uh, had, had I said had past tense, we have some flooding. Uh, yesterday, I got a text from the school system saying that they were canceling school in the afternoon. If you had any questions, call the school. And we had also had some of these, uh, they had had some drills related to school shootings, and they'd had some threats that corresponded with it, nothing like giving the power of suggestion to people. Uh, so the only thing anybody could think of was that there was something like that going on. And, of course, they gave you no information, so the only thing you could do is try and call the school and get a busy signal, which is even better. You know, thank you, school system. Uh, but the reason they were closing the school is because there was a risk of the dam breaking, and they wanted everybody to get home. Uh, as soon as possible. So the two dams that were in question was the Berrien Springs Dam uh, and the Buchanan Dam. Both of them were, both those dams are built in the early 1900s. But when you looked at the Buchanan Dam, it almost looked like a little bit of a ripple in the river. Mac, did you see any of those photos? Yeah, and considering that's like a 15, 18 foot drop. Yes. That's how high the water is. Yeah, that was, that's crazy. It was just going right and they had they had every spillway opened and then Bering springs wasn't wasn't much better and that's even a uh, a bigger drop right on on that one so in Bering springs they were worried they earlier today they said they don't expect both either of them to fail they had opened the the waterways but uh, elkhart indiana was hit exceptionally bad a lot of homes there niles michigan are one of our favorite grubbing and river dive sites uh 
the flooding has gone all the way from the river uh, behind and in front of the Wonderland Cinema across the road, around the apartment buildings, across the next road, and and to those apartment buildings. So that whole downtown area is pretty well flooded. And when you looked at that bridge, did you? I, I saw some drone footage of the bridge, and the brand new bridge barely has had any opening at that point in time for water to get through. It was like almost 100% uh, full. Well, one of our listeners, uh, Eric, he's out in uh, Comstock area. On the Calder River, it can back up pretty good over there. What's it looking like out in your neck of the woods? Eric Roloff is typing. It has stabilized, he tells us. Not too as bad. Because a, okay. a side note, we had four inches of rain over here. Four inches, yeah. Karen was saying that she had 3.85. Uh, that I mean, that's a lot of rain, but if somebody said, hey, we had four inches over <clears> a couple <throat> days, yeah, I'm not thinking that sounds too crazy. But when you have that across the whole watershed, there just was no place for that water to go. Well, part of the reason they were saying is uh, because you still got the permafrost layer is frozen. Mm-hmm. So it's not percolating. It's, like you said, running off, not being absorbed. Yeah. And we, we saw flooding in areas. It's, it wasn't just the rivers, but the back areas. Uh, Bering County put out a map. And every, if you look at all the north-south roads and the east-west roads, every single road that runs countywide either direction has at least three or four water-over-the-road sections where they've closed it. So you can't get straight from anywhere. But the only thing that uh, is has been free and clear are the the state and federal highways. Uh, the divided highways, though, seem to be up enough where they're getting around. So 94, uh, US 31, uh, US 12, almost. US 12 even has a couple spots that are that were flooded over. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, just... Well, I know even... I first encountered it leaving the, uh, the uh, Mud Club meeting. I uh, was coming home that night, and I take I-94 home, and I get off at Lawrence and take, I think it's 215 North Lawrence. And there's a section where uh, actually it actually becomes, uh, what is it, uh, 52nd Street there in Van Buren County. But uh, there's some low-lying areas where there are, I know there are some ponds nearby, and there were icebergs out in the road. Okay, and I know, yeah, you're not supposed to drive through the road with any kind of water in the road. At all. I, I get it, but I figured, hey, I could still see, you know, the yellow line, so it couldn't be that deep. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm driving a half-ton truck, so I I drove through it. But yeah, I'm actually driving over icebergs going through the through the road to get home. And then when I was getting close to home, uh, 20th Avenue Bridge was totally flooded out, and uh, couldn't get through that at all. So, yeah, I'm going to paste in the chat room a couple links. Uh, one one is on the dams. I did find a resource. It was it was older, but what this was uh, basically for fish migration barrier inventory, and that was from 2009. But in the process, they went and documented all the dams, uh, and there are a lot of them. And it was interesting how many dams they couldn't even find. There were dams, so they just had a list for years and years, and they were coming back to them and. And I, I bet you I know where some of them are that they couldn't find because unless somebody told you there used to be a dam there, you may not know. Because in the small towns, everybody had a grain mill or a lumber mill that was being powered by water, especially in this part of the state. Uh, the Buchanan Dam, its head height is 13 feet, 
and it was built in 1902. And then the Bering Springs Dam head height is 24 feet, and it was built in 1908. And on the list, I think the most recent dam I saw was one made in the mid-70s, but those were private dams. Well, they've been sitting there for, for 100 years. I'm sure they've seen some you know, stout storms come through in, the, in, in that time. Yeah. Well, I, going back in, in my local memory, and I moved here in 1984, is in the late 80s, we had a flood where they sandbagged in Niles around what we now call the movie theater, uh, and it flooded the downtown area. They, were, they, they have a, a mall-ish, like a strip mall there now that didn't used to be there, and that had flooded. And I remember when they built the mall, you're thinking, how stupid are you? That river is going to flood someday. And then a, a few years later in the mid, the early 90s, they had a flood. Again, not quite as bad as this time, but uh, pretty substantial. Um, and then this one. So they had a long dry spell, but this this will wake you up a little bit. Yeah, there's, there's a, if you look at my pace of the chat room, you can see right there, I believe that is the, that is showing the Wonderland Cinema. Uh, you can see the skate park. Yeah, it's that that whole downtown is is just completely flooded. Mm-hmm. So somebody that, insurance. Yes, yeah. somebody's insurance company's not going to be happy. Yeah. Well, if you checked your policy, you mean I'd be covered. You you have to buy some that special flood you, policy. Yes, you do. I had mine, and then when I renewed this year, uh, I asked about that and. Do you have any kind of external flooding of your basement, for example? That's not covered if you don't have a rider on it. Yeah. Well, and the thing is that flooding, there's you, you have to, and you know, we are not insurance experts, so please check with your agents on anything that you want to make sure is covered. But you have to be in certain zones to even get and qualify for some sort of flooding. So it's almost as bad to be just outside a flood zone as to be in it because that just outside you may not be eligible for the federal flood insurance and your insurance company is not going to cover you uh, for certain situations related to flooding. Hey, Darren, um, in this picture we have, Eric's Mm -hmm. wanting to know what the business is with the white roof on the left. The one with the right white roof on the left, that is the Wonderland Cinema, I believe. Oh, wait, no, 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 that's not it. That's the, it used to be a, uh, uh, a gas company, meaning like you, they, they, uh, gas for welding and industrial supplies that it was, uh, tanks and, uh, they, they have since gone out of business probably about two years ago. There may be something else in there. I'm, I'm not sure, but it used to be, uh, some sort of gas cylinder company where you could, you know, buy your helium and your propane and your argon and stuff, usually for industrial mm, supplies. Helium and- yeah, and probably oxygen and yeah, all, all the got some compressors in there and yeah. What are you guys talking about? Right there, if you if you look, if you look there in the uh, the live show chat, I put a link in there to the drone footage from Niles and the still photo that it shows in the chat room is showing the the green building is the Wonderland Cinema, and to the north of that is a building by the skate park. And that is a that used to be a gas cylinder company. Uh, I'm not sure who, what's in it now. 
but it's it's a it's a cement block building. It's the building itself is probably going to be okay. I've got the drone footage. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. You notice the hospital parking lot is flooded? No, I didn't. I didn't. Um, if you look at the drone picture, it shows me flooded. Wow. That I mean that that is that is seriously high there. Yeah, considering we go under the freaking bridge to dress sometime. Yeah. Yeah, that, that bridge there by the hospital, that has got to be just about completely full as well. Yeah, that's what it looks like right here. And the water normally isn't that deep, but they, uh, I'm trying to remember what the flood stage was, 13, not not what it was, but how much over. It was like 13.8 over flood or something. And when they were saying what it was going to crest at, the river was already above what their estimate was when they gave the estimate. So, but it, it's starting to come down. I'm, I've noticed the side little tributaries, Hickory Creek, uh, yesterday that had filled all the little valleys and ravines. And and that's kind of the clue. You know, Mother Nature has been on the planet an awful long time. So when you see these big giant valleys, a little tiny river in the middle, that uh, valley got there somehow. <laughs> She's been working on that. Hey, hey Darren, uh, Number of us are kind of hearing you get pretty digital uh, mm-hmm. time to time. Uh, your uh, level seems to be kind of inconsistent. Just just so you're aware of that. Okay. Well, I thought it was just on my end, but Eric Eric has mentioned it. Karen's hearing it too. So yeah. just so you know. Yeah. Un- unfortunately for everybody else, the recording is going to sound fine since it's local. <laughs> you're you're all going to sound digital. So. Uh, all right. Yeah. But that's just our uh, our wonderful bandwidth. We could blame it on the rain. So uh, before we get into the news, let's let's talk about what does this, uh, you know, let, let's see if we can turn this uh, negative into a positive. Uh, what does this flooding offer for us from a diving standpoint? Oh, a lot more stuff getting washed in the river to grub for down the road. I wonder if it'll clean out some of the dead trees that we had there already, or at least move them around and maybe open up new um walls to take a look at any tree that was sitting there in the middle of the river with the way the current's going if it's not trapped into something it's moving down someplace else (laughs) well across from the dock there at uh, Maramont, off to the right if you went in that section you had to have a big flag so when you went under the tree root and under the embankment you could get back out i'm really curious if that cut it more or less and if it cut it a lot more than that tree stump and everything should fall down. Yeah, this, this could be how some of those trees get in there in the first place, is this sort of weather. Uh, when I when I was down in St. Joe, I tried to take some video. Because you, you look at it, and it was right up to the uh, where we go in for the turkey dive. It was almost going over the banks there, but not quite. So it didn't look that impressive when you take the photo. But there was a log floating in the river, and it was moving faster than a boat. Oh, yeah, it's South Haven. The current was going easily five miles an hour. It was you know, well-contained in South Haven. You know, it was uh, it lived two to three feet above normal, which is a bit. I have a little item here. It's called uh, Void Traveling Through Floodwater. Want me to read it? Yeah, let's go for that. It does. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Never enter, enter twiftly flowing water and do not try to walk or drive through standing water because underneath the road may be compromised or blocked by debris. 
and we've seen evidence of that lately. When it comes to moving water, obviously, you should try to get the high ground and away from the flooding whenever possible. Don't put yourself deliberately into moving water. If you have standing water, you certainly don't want to drive or walk through that either. You can't see the bottom of it. The force of six inches of swiftly moving water can knock people off their feet. If you get knocked off your feet in six inches of water and you got your leg pinned or something so you can't get back up, you can actually drown because of... Did we lose you, Mac? ...float in as little as one foot or two foot of water, or as one foot, two foot of water can carry most cars away. Fast-moving water is extremely dangerous. Water moving at 10 miles an hour can exert the same pressure as wind gusts of 270 miles per hour, according to the USA Today. Standing water can be electrically charged due to fallen power lines that are submerged with those that are underground but still alive. For this comes the rest of uh, risk of electrocution. And that's more so if you were diving around docks and piers where the boats were because they didn't cut the power. That's probably energized and you could get a, you'd have a current. So officials warn residents to avoid standing, walking in floodwaters because of several potential hazards, including electrical current from down power lines that have not been shorted out. A lot of people forget about the electrical current. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they like be a real problem. Well, I, I was looking at uh, back on that drone footage where they showed the the Wonderland Cinema, and you see the the post uh, with the sign coming out of it, and you're, you're thinking, yeah, that that you hope that uh, that electric is properly grounded because uh, you you can just imagine what that's doing. Yeah, you hope they have GFIs for sure. Yeah, yeah, and and Elkhart that they were shutting power off to whole neighborhoods just for that particular reason. Uh, they said just for safety. Yeah, in our neighborhood, we do not have the power lines, or most of them, to the all the houses in the areas. They're all underground. Yeah. Well, is there anything different with uh, diving decontamination that we have to be concerned with in, in this situation? Well, I think you mentioned it earlier. You're going to have overflowing of the sewage, the sewers. So you're going to have all sorts of uh, ingredients active there in the river right now. Now, a lot of it will, you know, sink to the bottom of the heavier metals and stuff like that, but you're still going to have it. But mm -hmm. it does lead, if you're going to be diving, do you really want to be doing scuba and do you want to not have a full face? So how long do – go ahead. I don't know. But some of the stuff I've been grubbing in, <laughs> what's going to be floating down – the uh, Beirut's and all that, it's not going to fit me. I'm going anyway. <laughs> Let's bring it. <laughs> you just don't want to drink the water. Yes. Well, yeah. Well, and, and or get it in cuts. I read the, the articles on the CDC and a few of the other ones, and they were talking about floods that have happened in other places and items you have to watch out for. And the risk of getting water contamination on wounds, injuries, uh, really compounded, especially if you have a suppressed immune system. Yeah. And since we also have cold water, we don't have to worry about the aspects of mosquitoes and the infection, uh, you know, how that will affect you had it been a warm water item. And, of course, you've still got the, the mold and mildew that you're going to have afterwards. So you got lots and lots of items out there. They were saying floodwaters contain dirt, animal waste, sewage, industrial chemicals, pesticides, home cleaning chemicals, because that was what was in your house, uh, oil, fuel, bacteria, and viruses. Yeah, all those things that... Yep, and anything that was in the storm sewers, yep. channel runoffs, yeah, yep. don't drink the water. 
Anything that's in people's cars, back sheds, barns. That's all, all those be- pesticides. Yeah, that's all, that's all being mixed up into a nice slurry. Yeah. So how long do we think before uh, the, the river will be in a diveable condition again? Several, several weeks. <laughs> several weeks. So it's going to be who, who's the brave one who goes in first? Because you know that some of those uh, bottled honey holes have got to be uh, changed or excavated a little bit. I would really hope people would wait until the current decreased because it's not so much the, the low vis. It's the idea of getting caught in a current and you can't go against it. And then you get rammed into a tree or you're, you know, you become a strainer and yeah. then you're screwed. Yeah. And, and a lot of these, we, we have to relearn the rivers. All those trees that were there have, could be moved. And, uh, you know, I, I saw that log coming down the, the river today. I was thinking how uncomfortable that would be if that would happen to hit you in the head or pin you against something. Well, that goes well with the article at the end of the presentation, cleaning and deconning flood-soaked scuba diving gear. Okay. Well, well, we'll hit that one after we get through scuba the news. So let's go ahead and jump on into that. I'd like to thank everybody who's listening in the chat room. We have uh, Derek and Eric and Karen came on in there. And all our $3 or more supporters on Patreon got early access to the show notes. So those went in there. Um, have to apologize for last week that we didn't record and we've still got an episode or two in the can that we need to get edited and out there. So by the time you hear this one, we'll, we'll have at least one of those out there before this one comes through. It seemed like there was something else I was going to say, and it just completely escaped my mind. So we'll, we'll just jump right on into the news. And, uh, the first one, the first article we have is our full face snorkels killing Hawaiian holiday makers. Relatives to late snorkelers in Hawaii believe snorkel masks may be to blame for a slew of recent deaths. An investigation has been launched into the safety of snorkel masks after at least nine people died within two weeks. This according to KTVU. A girlfriend to an experienced swimmer said she is contemplating a lawsuit against the maker of the mask after her former lifeguard boyfriend died suddenly from a drowning incident. I'm still confused how this happened. The cause of death is drowning. The girlfriend to late uh, Brian Bayer. Heidi Williams said in a comment on the Maui News, the experienced swimmer died in January while wearing the mask. Nancy Peacock, another drowning victim from 2016, also died from what her husband believes could be related to the equipment. Her husband, Guy Cooper, said he'll never know what really happened, but if he can somehow prevent it from happening to somebody else, that's what he'll do. His wife had reportedly been snorkeling prior to her mysterious death while she was wearing the equipment. The scuba mask can create carbon monoxide buildup, which could cause people to lose consciousness, according to KTVU, who spoke to a merchandiser of the mask. Mark Stanley, owner of the Bamboo Dive Center, told the news station beginners are more likely to have trouble with breathing. If you dive down, take a big breath, then go down, the ball comes up and prevents any water from going inside the mask. Beginners are more likely to panic or hyperventilate, he suggested. According to the Highway Department of Health, snorkeling is the number one cause of death for non-residents in Hawaii. Bridget uh, Valesco, a Hawaii Department of Health, told San Francisco Gate there's an interest in looking for looking at the mechanics of respiration across a variety of snorkels and masks. She said the investigation is in the beginning stages. Wow, that is a lot of people in just a short time, two weeks? Well, you know, we saw these in use at the Diver event we went to back in uh, December, and they do function 
quite differently than a traditional snorkel and mask separate units. But I don't know. I was I was quite impressed with how well they did function. Yeah. You know, uh, it may not be something that you want to dive down deep wearing just because you have a rather large you know area which you need to equalize there. Uh, but I don't know. Perhaps there should be some training and instruction with these things. I don't know. Uh, with any kind of sporting activity, you're, you're going to have accidents. You know, uh, fatalities. Though it seems a little extreme with these, but um, I kind of like to see what, you know how they are coming up with these statistics. Now, now the the carbon uh, dioxide. That's kind of an interesting take on it. Do we think there's a possibility because of the increased volume? that maybe it's acting as a separator. So with carbon dioxide being heavier than oxygen, if you're exhaling into this large volume, uh, maybe the carbon dioxide is collecting. And Well, I'm wondering if it's dead space because, you know, if you're, if they're breathing very shallowly, then you, know, you, you have to do a decently large exhale in order to get all the air out of the mask out through the, the snorkel there. But if you, you know, were breathing very shallow, then, you know, you're going to be end up, you know, recycling the same air over and over again, which is going to build up in CO2 mm-hmm. and be a problem. What do you think, Mac? Well, uh, I think it's quite interesting. For one, there are multiple different varieties and variations for that full face mask. Now, the one that I have used, the October Moon, and the one that you have mm-hmm. and have not been able to use yet, I've been doing um, experiments at the YMCA with it to find out how other people liked it besides me and those who could swim well and those who couldn't. The aspect about the CO2 buildup, I guarantee you that if you do heavy-duty swimming from one end to the other doing laps, you're not going to have any uh, O2 buildup. But what you will have, and you can you can demonstrate this on yourself, is if you take that snorkel or any snorkel, you stand up, put the mask on and breathe, absolutely no resistance, no no, um, no feeling in the, in the chest area that, hey, it takes a little effort. You submerge your body just standing, you know, go down with your chest, your face is out of the water, mm-hmm. face is not in the water yet, and breathe. Totally different because you've got compression on your chest that makes breathing when you're snorkeling more labor intensive than, than when you go in a prone position with your head slightly up, you've got a good ventilation aspect. Now, if you were to look at the description on that one, on the type October Moon, for example, it says, snorkel, caution, is not intended for use in free diving. Number one is if you dive to 15 feet with that mask on, unless you can clear your ears without, punch, you know, doing your nose, it's yeah. going to hurt. So you're not going to be doing any diving with it. Oh, sucker, yeah. please. I can't go down to 15 feet without my ears telling me you really shouldn't be doing this. Uh, played with that. So it's a, not in free diving, not scuba diving, or strenuous, strenuous swimming. And I've done that part, and I can't out-breathe it. So I'm not sure what the issue there on strenuous, but um, it worked really great. And I had a couple of the younger kids play with it, and they just loved that sucker. Yeah. And said, so uh, follow the instructions to, uh, carefully to make sure you maximize your snorkel experience, maintain safe use, not intended for children under 12 without adult supervision. And then they, they spend time on preparation, make sure you get all the debris and sand and stuff you had it on the beach out of the snorkel. Make sure you check the seal so the seal is functional with you and you can tighten it up. And then it said, calmly breathe, don't get excited, and try it in the shallows. If, if you uh, 
feel lightheaded, remove your mask immediately, keep your chin up, and that'll create the best breathing pattern or experience. And it does. Uh, the dry top snorkel design will prevent water from entering through the top of the snorkel. If it leaks, lift your head up, the mask drains to the valve at the bottom, and it does. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just talks about after you use it, go ahead and wash it, clean it, and dry it. But the experience I've had with mine have been very positive. I would be curious to know the age group that did not make it. I would also be curious if they were wearing safety vests, if they would have gotten tired or what have you. I'd be curious to know if they had been drinking, if it had been a party atmosphere. And uh, it'll be it's, it's interesting. I did also go to a different link to this one. And it said they couldn't do some investigations on the fatalities because at the time they were drowning and they drew the snorkel slash mask or whatever. It got dumped and nobody could recover it. Therefore, they could not do an evaluation on the specific mask based on the person who had drowned. So that one little issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second, I was looking at the comments now on the one you're looking at here. If you scroll to the bottom. That's interesting because according to some comments people have been made, uh, they've had this type of device. Well, I can't believe they've had the full face one like this, but I remember the full face round scuba mask with the ping pong balls Mm -hmm. attached to it, and they've had fatalities with that. Now, is that because you overbreathed? I personally have used that also, and I find that hard to believe. But according to down here, the last one here is from the U.K., so several manufacturers of these masks approached a UK dive safety company called Open Safety Equipment. Their safety work can be seen by searching rebreather fatal accident list. Uh, the manufacturers were offering a contract to improve them. Open Safety told them to recall them, abandon the, the product as they violated UE regulations relating to these masks and had a long history of safety issues, some of which they were unable to be fixed. Now, if that's true, then maybe somebody has stands, you know, legs for litigation. But just reading this comment, you know, comment to comment until you can show me some documentation. Well, one question I have is the, uh, you know, they mentioned in the article that, you know, snorkeling being the leading cause of death for uh, non-residents in Hawaii, yet, you know, we're getting a number of deaths with these. Uh, I'm curious, we can't answer this, of course, but I wonder how the amount of deaths, you know, percentages of users of these masks stack up against the number of deaths against, you know, you know just tr- uh, traditional snorkeling setups. Well, also the other one, if you do look at the chart, it has snorkeling, meaning residents who do this a lot, and non-residents. And the non-resident one is the one that's 156 deaths compared to 13. Now, does that mean the visitors are out of shape, overextending themselves on vacation, doing stuff in nice warm water with visibility they wouldn't do or couldn't do anywhere else? Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, I've I've snorkeled on a vacation, and um, you, you, you've got all sorts of conditions that are going on. You're tired. Uh, you may not be familiar with equipment. It may not fit you right. Uh, you know, you're not familiar with the area. Hopefully there's some studies done on this and they're able to determine what the cause is or maybe even just best practices, what are habits that uh, will reduce the risk. Not going drunk, well, I think, I was, would be one. One of the items I was looking at here is uh, also UK. It said, I am 60 years old and 
At age five and six, I started snorkeling when we lived in Gibraltar. Even back then, 63, 64, these full face masks were known to cause problems. My father taught me to snorkel with a standard mask over my nose and eyes and a regular snorkel in my mouth. No ping pong ball or other valve. I do not remember any actual death, but I do remember other kids having difficulty due to the full face mask. And in fact, uh, any snorkel with a ping pong ball valve type device. Again, I've used those back in the day. I didn't have a problem with them. Yeah. Well, this next article we have is Blue Planet has inspired the BBC to to ban all plastic containers and utensils by 2002. Why can I not scroll this article? And I take it that means by their their employees. Well, that that the what the heck? This page just froze up on me. Darn it. Yeah, I, I'm gonna hit refresh, which means I'll lose it. It's it's probably so they can serve me another round of annoying ads. Yeah, here we go. Oh yeah, there's a video there. Uh, they said plastic is not only affecting animal life, but it may even be contaminating our tap water in the form of tiny particles. Nothing is done. Plastic pollution become even more of an issue than it already has. It's huge right now. Uh, they said, according to the UK news outlet, nearly 2 million plastic cups are used by BBC visitors and staff each year. That's telling me you've got a lot of visitors and staff if you're going through 2 million cups. Uh, yeah, but when it comes to um, plastic utensils, it's astounding how many straws we go through yes. on a daily basis. Uh Amy and I were just recently over at uh, Shed's Aquarium in Chicago, and Shed's Aquarium refuses to uh, have anything in the cafeteria with the you know they won't offer you a straw there, mm-hmm. and because of, you know the straws you know get discarded and it's kind of just a they're bad for the environment and it's astounding. I guess I had a hard time believing the statistic here, but what they quoted was that in the U.S. We go through 300 million straws a day. A day. So that's saying well, that every, that's one straw per person in the U.S. every day. Well, they're, they're saying that. And, and you think about it. You know, people who you know do eat out a lot, you know, yeah. they might be using several straws a day, whereas, you know, those of us who don't might not use a straw a month. But it sounds like you have a lot of people who are very heavy users of straws and yeah, at Shed's Aquarium, the, the statistic they quoted was in the, the U.S. alone, 300 million straws a day. Yeah. Not all of those are drinking straws either. Do you remember the little plastic one you get to stir your coffee with? That's yeah. considered yeah. a straw. Yeah. Well, I can uh, start believing when you start getting into those little items. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well you're, you're about, you said that, Mac, and I was thinking the same thing. At work, That's you, you go down to the uh, the, uh, the coffee pot. You pour some coffee, you throw a little creamer in there, and you grab that little plastic straw and you stir it around. And I'm sure I could go through three of those a day. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and Eric's pointing out in the chat room that you know whenever you go to a restaurant, every drink you get gets a fresh straw. They bring you one for your water. They bring you one for your lemonade. They bring you one for your gin and tonic. You know, I mean, these it, it really adds up. See, see, I, they used to not be plastic though. They used to be paper. Yeah, I, I remember that. Remember, I remember the uh, uh, going to the bowling alley, and you had the vending machine where we always tried to trick it, but it never worked. Where you put the coins in, and then you'd pull the bottle out, and then the little claws would would open just enough to where you could 
get whichever uh, beverage you wanted out of it, but they would have a dispenser of paper straws next to the machine. That's what you put in. And, it, and that was a timed event. You had about 45 minutes to slurp down whatever you had before that turned into mush. But I'm sure they could they could make it better. Well, and the thing, same thing with plastics is they can use other forms of uh, plastic that would break down into something else or or things that would appear to be plastic-like but don't have quite the lifespan. Well, I think around the house we're going to go to using ones you can wash and recycle. Uh, you know, I mean... I know that uh, the 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 uh, no, I was going to say Slurpee crowd, the smoothie crowd. Uh, you can buy some of these stainless steel larger straws and uh, wash those. So mm-hmm. that's that's something I'll probably start looking for. Makes sense. Well, it'd be interesting if they are successful and do start a trend. But the other part, where the prime minister in the UK said by twenty forty two. They have launched the initiative to ensure all plastic packaging in the country is reusable or recyclable by 2030. Yeah. I like it. I do, too. Yeah, they, they, they said they're using uh, recycled plastic to repair roads and plastic-eating caterpillars. Now, the thing with the plastic, if you've determined that plastic is going to just keep breaking down, even if it's in the road, it, it's still going to make its way into the environment. Unless you've got a bunch of those plastic-eating caterpillars. Well, okay. How how about this for uh, another market for scuba diving? Uh, super yacht scuba diving is has untapped potential. Ocean Pro aims to help super yachts with unused capacity for scuba diving. They said it's common to find scuba diving equipment on super yachts used for both guest enjoyment and by crew for maintenance issues. However, the lack of crew training. Training and knowledge can mean that such resources are not always taken advantage of. Ocean's Pro Global Super Yacht Scuba has grown out of diamond diving, a paddy five-star instructor development dive center based in the south of France. The aim is to create a dedicated brand to service leader scuba diving requirements for the super yacht market with a mission to increase the amount of safe and professional leisure scuba diving on board super yachts. There are so many super yachts out there with unused capacity for scuba diving. The reason that super yachts don't tend to make use of diving equipment on board are many, including safety concerns, lack of crew knowledge, and matters of time available during a busy season. As such, Ocean Pro wants to support super yachts in several ways from crew training, consultation, equipment service. The company is also building up a network of some of the most experienced instructors and dive guides around the world so they can contact him with yachts whenever and wherever the owners and guests want to go scuba diving. Can you say rich and famous people? Well, I'm just thinking, how big of a problem is this? I mean, how many super yachts are there out there? Must be a bunch. I'm sure there's a a number of them, and it would be intriguing. The thing is, uh, these boats aren't easy to anchor. You know, I'm a little bit leery about what are they going to moor to? You know, I mean... (laughs) You take this thing out to a a reef, and you go drive, you know, one hundred and twenty pound Danforth down there. <laughs> how much how much damage is that, is that anchor going to do to that reef? Um, you know, how much are you going to go out wreck diving with this thing? You know, I mean, are you going to go out and try to hook the wreck with this super yacht, which is probably might be bigger than 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 the wreck down there? Uh, well, what I think you're going to what would make more sense is many of these. Super yachts have a dinghy or other vessel, 
And that's what you do. You, you know, you go diving off that vessel. You, know, you, you anchor the super yacht offshore quite a bit. Then you, you do a little two minute jaunt to the, uh, to the wreck you're going to go diving on. And then you can <clears throat> more to that because yeah, it, I mean, could you, could you see this over the Havana? <laughs> it, 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 it would be like you're diving. What, what, what happened? Somebody blotted out the sun. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just literally about, you know, cause you know, there's going to be, there will be moorings coming up on a lot of these wrecks here and people putting out these moorings aren't planning on, you know, Oprah Winfrey's 120 footer sitting up there, you know, <laughs> I mean, what thinking about, you know, a 27, you know, uh, local charter up there. We're not thinking about, you know, uh, yeah. eighty thousand pound boat hooking out of this thing, you so, know. So, so how how many uh, railroad trucks is that that you've got to put down there to? to <laughs> yeah, how many train wheels? Yeah, how many train wheels anchor a super yacht? Well, yes, it would all depend upon the super yacht too. You know, yeah. I mean, are we, are we talking like Donald Trump's super yacht? Are we talking Oprah Winfrey's super yacht? You know, Warren Buffett's super yacht? I mean, who? It all depends upon the yacht, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we don't have to worry about it in Lake Michigan or any of the Great Lakes. But I was also curious that they were talking about a lot of deck crew on these boats are rescue divers or master divers, and their skills are not being used. Well, you've already got them on board. You're going to have your guests do this. I don't see how there's a problem that can't be resolved by the captain of the boat. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have talked to people who had gone diving with Paul Allen. I mean, that was what he used to use his super yacht for. So, I'm I'm wondering if this is just a more of a a case they're they're trying to position themselves as a support company for these super yachts, knowing that you know you're uh, you know we're, we're a fourteen thousand dollar invoice to a dive shop or a small boat might be considered completely crazy, but to a super yacht, yeah, you know, that's a that's probably the the cost of a, a bumper. Well, so, I could be a scuba diver nanny. Yeah. Well, it's it's also bragging rights, you know, because you know it's no secret these guys with the super yachts have they usually got a number of uh, beanies around there, and they can go out dive in some place now. That's uh, going to bring a lot more on board and a lot more attraction for them. Yep, there you go. Yeah. Well, my go. age and my physique, I think I'm out of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, oh, crap. I got the, the oh, snap on the... That's one of those nice job if you can get it, huh? Yeah, yeah, if you could. Uh, yeah. I'd, I'd love to for somebody to pay me just to go scuba diving and not have you to... Say, I mean, would you go Would you go without getting paid if you could be on a super yacht? Well, as, as Kim would say, the other gorgeous babes and whatever that may be on board, would you care if you got paid? Well, can I afford not to have another job? <laughs> I mean, if I if, if I was uh, you know, a person of leisure and retired, maybe, and you know, you're not charging me for a twelve dollar water, uh, yeah, maybe I I would at least uh, you know take a vacation and volunteer. You guys are looking at this all wrong, though. I mean, you guys have been on my boat. I'm not sure if I played it with you folks, though. But I don't. One of the traditions on my boat. Um, there's a video on YouTube, uh, quite politically incorrect, and I do not at all endorse this kind of behavior, but look up on YouTube, uh, Jay Hickman 
boat ride, okay? Oh. And you will see the big draw for the super yachts, okay? So take a look at it sometime. Hey, baby, you want to go for a boat ride? Yeah. Take a look at that on YouTube, and you won't forget it, okay? <laughs> so Jay Hickman's boat ride. Yeah. Well, we have scientists find a 9,000-year-old human remains and Ice Age animal bones in Mexico caves. Archaeologists exploring the world's biggest flooded cave system have discovered 9,000-year-old human bones and remains of Ice Age creatures that once roamed the Earth. Relics of Mayan civilization have also been found in the Sac Octon caves in the Mexico state of Quintana Roo. I'm sure I am just slaughtering that as normal. Scientists believe the water in the caves would have been accessed by people and animals in the region during times of severe drought. The sprawling 215-mile network of caves with 248 underwater pools is now a treasure trove for archaeologists, lying the place history as far back as 2.6 million years ago. Scientists have said the caves are an important submerged archaeological site in the world, where they discovered 200 archaeological sites. Remains from, oh, I'm not even going there. An elephant-like animal to giant sloths and bears have been discovered. Burnt human bones, ceramics, and wall etchings have also been found. Scuba Divers Exploring the Caves is a project sponsored by National Mexico's National Institute of Anthropology and History, INAH. Uh, researchers at the Institute said, I think it's overwhelming. Wow, those are some beautiful photos there. Without a doubt, the most important submerged archaeological site in the world. It's very likely that there's another site in the world with the same characteristics. It's also an impressive amount of archaeological artifacts inside. The level of preservation is also impressive. Water levels in the region of the Yucatan Peninsula, where the caves are based, rose by 330 feet at the end of the Ice Age around 11,700 years ago. Global warming? Yeah, that's exactly what... When you're coming from an Ice Age, everything's global warming. Uh, of the archaeological sites discovered, around 140 from the Mayan civilization, which first established in 750 A.D., the Great Mayan Aquifer Project, which oversaw a recent dive, was the, created to discover if there are links between the Mayans and earlier pre-ceramic societies. 198 objects were found in the cave system, including Mayan burial site where humans remain, or with human remains. Of the discovery, 138 are thought to be post-classic Mayan period, 900 to 1200 A.D., with the 60 remaining thought to be from pre-ceramic era of 10,000 to 4,000 B.C. Scientists even discovered a shrine to the Mayan god of war and commerce with a staircase accessed through a sinkhole in the middle of the jungle. Hundreds of sinkholes have been connected to the caves, have signs of ritual activity, archaeologists said. Ancient Mayans viewed cave the sacred place, the INAH said. In January, it was reported that a team of divers connected to two underwater caverns Eastern Mexico to reveal was thought to be the biggest flooded cave system on the planet. And they go on and on, but uh, some, some beautiful photos there. It's just amazing how clear that water is. Yeah, I mean, you're seeing a little bit of backscatter in the light there, but not much. That was probably just the early day uh, uh, introduction to diving class in the caves. There was that one picture where it's... Uh titled The Sprawling 215-Mile Network of Caverns or Caves as 248 Underwater Pools. That section there doesn't have a lot of backscatter, but I'd sure keep my mind and my hand on that line right there. Now I want to find my way back out. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to add to those uh, 
9,000-year-old human remains down there. Yeah, how, how many of those remains have a uh, respirator in the jaws? <laughs> yeah. Anybody can go into that and explore. Coming out, really important. And then Russian archaeologists discover Roman period artifacts from a shipwreck in the Crimean. Crimean. A team of archaeologists have discovered two ancient anchors and many other artifacts in the mount of the Belbek River near Sevastopol in Crimea. According to the archaeological team, these items date back to the Roman period and supposedly belong to the ancient sea vessel that sank off the coast in the second or third centuries A.D. Two anchors as well as lead plates and cauldrons dating back to the Roman period were found at the mouth of the river. According to uh, Labadinsky, two anchors discovered are identical in shape and size or recovered from a depth of 6.5 meters, suggesting they probably belong to a wrecked ship. Archaeologists believe many more items belonging to the ship could be present at the site. All the artifacts unearthed by the team have been sent to the Center for Marine in- Research and Technology at the University. Uh, of those items displayed publicly following the completion of the research. The city is located near the site of an ancient Greek colony of uh, Cherisonis, Cherson, which was established in 421 BC. This colony was founded by the settlers from Ursina Ponita. Not even, that, I'm not, that's not even close. Historians believe the remains of the most significant Greek colony in Crimea and t- Crimea until 179 B.C. when it came under the rule of the king of Mithridates the Sixth. What was that? Mithridates the Sixth. Mithridates. Yeah. Uh, in the first century A.D., this entire region became part of the Roman Empire, according to Encyclopedia. In the fourth century A.D., the Byzantine rulers changed the name to Thersones to Corson. Archaeologists discovered a large number of ancient artifacts from the region in the past one decade. In 2015, researchers found the wreck of a Byzantine ship in the Black Sea off the coasts. According to the Greek reporter, the ship dated back to the 10th century is filled with the amphorae. The archaeological team recovered hundreds of ancient items of shipwreck in a in all in very condition. I, mean, I think they're meaning very good condition. Uh, the site. Ruins was declared a World Heritage Site by UNESCO. Good for them. I, when I looked earlier, I thought I saw more photos, but I'm just not seeing them now. Nice beach area, though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, then a couple of submerged pictures if you wrote, you know, if you go down. Mm-hmm. You can see them. Um, um, it almost looks like a skeleton, but it's really a jugs, I think, they're looking yeah. at. See Is that he- one? Yeah, I, I'm not now, but you know my connection might be bad enough. It's just not showing up. But I did see some earlier when I originally looked at the article. Looked like they were doing some surveying. Yeah, it looks like he's got a breather on, but he's got two side mount bottles that are rather large too. Oh, then it has pictures of artifacts. Yeah, see, I, I, that's what I'm not seeing now, but I saw them earlier. Yeah, in the area, it's also got the uh, remains of an old British battleship. How old? World battleship. Uh, there's been a couple of wars there. That's actually depending on which version you want. You know, that's what was the old word for that one. Um, this is really the Ukraine, right? They, they called it a city within a special status within the U- U- Ukraine until they got annexed in what 2014. Yeah, yeah. You, that that's that's that fun part of the world where everybody's fighting and positioning and stuff. So I was curious about the temperature. You know, you keep thinking Russia, you keep thinking cold. 
Uh-huh. And I looked that up a little bit, and it said, generally, the summer holiday season is five months from mid-May till September, not like Lake Michigan. Um, temperature often reaching 68 degrees Fahrenheit or more in the first half of October. The average annual temperature is 58 degrees, um, 45 degrees in February to 75 in August. The sea temperature is is uh, greater than 68 degrees, so I could swim there without a wetsuit. Oh, yeah. So average sea temperature is 63. So a nice wetsuit, we could dive all year round. Let's go. Yeah, I'm, I'm up for a road trip. Well, if you looked at the satellite image, I am willing to bet. I mean, it's like ends and outs, and like a sawtooth is what it looks like going into the river. And I am, you know, those are all bay areas, sheltered areas. That's where you start looking for your artifact. Be nice. Well, that does it for the regular part of Scuba News. Uh, we do have a photo of the day. These freakish creatures were not meant to see the light of day. This is from LiveScience.com. Cookie cutter shark that glows in the dark. Well, phallic peanut worms and uncanny dispensed looking blobfish were never meant to see the light of day. And yet some of the more than 100 deep sea species recently scooped up the Australian coast in a mission to identify animals that live in these barely explored extreme underwater habitats. For a month in 2017, a research vessel investigated the investigator sailed across the eastern Australian abyss from Tasmania to Queensland, mapping and sampling the sea for at depths to nearly three miles or four 1,800 meters, more than 100 times deeper than most scuba divers will ever reach and survive. You can go down, just not coming up. Uh, using these special nets, sleds, and other techniques, research team on board collected more than 42,700 fish and invertebrate specimens representing more than 100 types of animal, possibly including new species. This week, scientists gathered at the CSIRO, Australian National Fish Collection, and Hobart, Tasmania, to thoroughly examine and identify those specimens collected during the sampling of the abyss voyage. For those of us abroad, it was a real buzz to see these amazing fish as they emerged from the nets. We're looking forward to the opportunity to take a closer look at them in Hobart this week. Museum's Victoria ichthyologist Martin Gorman said in a statement from CSIRO, the extreme conditions of the deep sea, just above freezing temperature, crushing pressure, and scarce light and food, produce some strange-looking creatures. Among the star discovered in the voyage was the faceless fish collected from two and a half miles or 4,000 meters below the surface. This creature hadn't been seen since 1870 when the first and only other specimen was dredged up off the coast of the Papua New Guinea. Now, look at that thing. That is such a I wouldn't one. like to meet that deep sea lizard, the lizard fish. Oh, well, well, let me see. Where's, where's that? That's Ooh. the third fish down. Yeah. Next picture down. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's he's, uh, he's a cute little guy. He looks like something. Remember Beetlejuice? He looks like uh, something from there. Uh, from, wow. The feeler fish. Yeah I, yeah, I don't think I need him feeling. Um, there wasn't a day at sea we didn't bring up some rubbish from the seafloor, cans, bottles, plastic, rope, fishing line. Expedition leader Tim O'Hara, senior curator of marine invertebrates at the Museum Victoria, wrote, there is also odd debris from steamships, such as unburned coal, bits of clinker, which look like melted rock formed in the boilers. Were they dragging the bottom? I mean, Sounds that, like it. They said with sleds. No, it makes That's sense. I associate with it. Yeah, if, if you're doing that, I would see how you could, because you're pulling up significant portions. 
of it, of the bottom. So, huh. They see how big that net is? Well, I mean, they had to been pulling up quite a bit. I mean, look at 42,700 fish. Wow. Still, that'd be cool. That'd be a fun project to be on, I think. But it didn't look like they really got a chance to do anything. It looked like they were just sorting, collecting to go and look at it later. So they must have had some big freezers on board. Or are they preserving them all? I wouldn't be a bit surprised. That faceless fish is ugly. That certainly is. Got kind of, you look at it, you can see kind of almost like a scaly texture to it. Is that on its side? Is there, Are we seeing its mouth on the right side there? Or is that something else? It's hard to even... It's hard to describe what that creature is yeah or maybe that's a gill it's, yeah it's like like the blob yeah yeah could you imagine being the guy who gets to to dissect that i mean that that's got to be a, just like a dream yeah for them or yeah for us not, not my kind of dream well when you're when you're done you got sushi hmm. well and then the next one we have is the video of the week i watch a trail guide take an eerie walk through a flooded nature preserve and I did watch this video when I was at a place where I had some decent internet. And uh, when you look at the video, you realize something isn't quite right. You're walking in a rainforest trail that was uh, a clear path that was with clear path and vegetation, but the light was tinged just a little green. Everything from the camera forward movement to the sway of leaves happens a bit more slowly than it should. Eventually, the camera tilts up to reveal the sky has a strange ceiling. It isn't the sky you're looking at, it's underwater. The footage was taken February 2nd, 2018, in the Recanto Ecologico Rio de Parta, a nature reserve in Jardim, Brazil. People go to the park to ride, horseback ride, bird watch, and scuba dive, but not generally on the same path. When a park guide went to monitor the site and found that his hiking trail suddenly required a snorkel, he decided to take out his camera. The park is that uh, particular trail is located at the junction of two rivers. According to video description, the heavy rains in early February caused uh, that section to dam up, raising the level in turn. The water clarity likely results from combination of factors, including the source, springs that wind through limestone karst, and the fact that visitors are encouraged not to kick up sediment. How does that make it? How do visitors not kick up sediment? That's, that does not make any sense there. Well, encouraged not to. Right, but that's that. I I can tell everybody around here, uh, don't kick up sediment. We're still going to have really low visibility. Uh, I think it's just the, the, they just had clear water that came down. Did you get a chance to see the video, Mac? Yes, I did. I went ahead and looked at it. And like you said, it was a little eerie for a minute. And you realized, wow, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. And obviously he did snorkel it, though, didn't he? I'm hoping so. He had a. Uh, some pretty good breath hold technique. Was he using a full face snorkel down there? Oh, taking really shallow breaths? Hopefully not. Mm-hmm. Well, that does it for that section. So has anybody been getting any sort of diving in? Got a couple in. Um, let's see. Uh, Amy and I went out to the uh, Oxbow over in uh, Saugatuck. Took a look at the Condor shipwreck over there. I was thinking that with all the ice we've had, that it should have been a, a pretty clear dive. Now, the Ocbo I'm referring to, um, it's a, it used to be a portion of the Kalamazoo River. The Kalamazoo River originally had a mouth 
into Lake Michigan, about a mile south of where it currently is, due to issues with uh, a lot of silting and, sand, and sandbars. 1901, the uh, U.S. Corps of Engineers built another mouth just a mile north of there, what the current mouth is today. And for a while, they had two mouths in there, and at that time, uh, the southern mouth had next to no current and would winter ships in the off-season. And the Condors was one such boat that was wintered in there from uh, 1903 to 1904. And 1904, ice breakup uh, stove in the bow, and the boat sunk there right there at the dock. It's a 68-foot-long sloop. The uh, hull is very much identifiable, but it's been twisted. The, uh, they actually tried to salvage it for two years and did quite a bit of damage to it in the process. And then it's also only in about, uh, I don't know, 12, 15 feet of water. So it gets, you know, quite a bit of warm water on it there. I'm sure it's, you know, not a very solid wreck. It's not like, you know, a, a deep water, you know, pristine one by any means. But still, it's a nice, cool, easy dive. And, you know, I was thinking that the nice dive would get some good visibility. And I know Rob, since I tried to ice dove it last year, didn't go so well. Uh, it seems that no matter what, this time of year, I mean, no matter what, that pond down there, is just going to be green and <laughs> bad visibility. So, oh well, I did a double dip. It was, uh, didn't, it was a nice dive. Cool. Um, Mac, have you gotten any uh, diving in? Other than the YMCA pool, no. yeah. I've been in the warm water. Yeah, well, that, I see we've got some uh, some divers going into uh, – some tropical locations looked like was a bob down in hawaii yes he's done so he's had uh some very very nice pictures he got that new camera system and he's trying to get into more micro i do believe if you've seen some of the shots he's got yeah, he's look, doing pretty darn decent they look beautiful and i think what we at the dive meeting the other night um oh geez i'm trying to remember who went to aruba because he got four dives in two on airplanes and two on regular wrecks was it Richard? No, Richard just got back from Iceland, so I don't know where he's at now. That's Leroy. Leroy is who went. Him and his wife, they go on a cruise all the time. And uh, he had a grand time talking about the wrecks, and he, he liked to dive the airplanes. Well, it looks like we're going to have a little dry dry spot coming up for diving. I saw that uh, some in the Mud Club Facebook group are trying to organize something for this weekend. I wonder where people are going to end up at gonna have to be inland that's for sure yeah i wonder what lake 16 is looking like well lake 16 doesn't have much of an inlet does it i can't imagine it getting it off i mean it's with all the all the rain i'm sure the visibility is not what it was two weeks ago under the ice but it's probably a you know you know deep halfway decent although that's an awfully deep lake i wonder if the it, it may still have ice on it it's possible. It's interesting how uh, just a little bit farther north the, the season changes. Plus, they're inland, so they, they freeze up a little earlier than we do. Well, Mac, you had a uh, safety article? Well, okay. I think I'm back on again. Yep. Yeah, I was looking at all the, the floodwaters and thinking about, boy, I'd like to go get wet, but maybe I'll wait a little bit. 
one of the items I saw and read about was Emotion Ventures, and a really good article, a little long, but it talked about cleaning and decontaminating flood soap scuba diving equipment, meaning you didn't go diving, but your house got flooded out or your car got sunk and your gear was in it. So it said, um, with all the rain and flooding this week, I'm sure some of the scuba diving equipment was exposed to rising floodwaters in the area. So let's talk about how to clean and decontaminate flood-soaked diving equipment. Now, I bet you're thinking, scuba equipment, it's supposed to get wet, right? It's just fresh water, rainwater, right? And that's when it says, well, while the initial rainfall may have been fresh water, the water that has poured down upon our homes here lately, landed on the ground, made its way to the home by moving through storm sewers, sewer off-channels, swamps. During this journey, it may have picked up any number of contaminants containing water, dirt, animal waste, sewage, industrial chemicals, pesticides, home cleaning, cleaning chemicals, fuel, oil, bacteria, and viruses. We talked about that earlier that we're going to have here also. While much of the scuba equipment is designed to operate in a wet environment, it's not intended to be submerged in the rising floodwaters. Uh, the type of water represents and presents a different set of issues that are not normal to the diving equipment, namely immersion is in unsafe contaminants. And then they talk about the fundamentals of decontamination and quoted, uh, you can find this online also, the U.S. Navy Manual Guidance for Diving in Contaminated Water. And then, of course, after you get out, you got a decon. It says, the aim of decontamination is to either rapidly and effectively render contamination harmless or remove it. The goal of systematic decontamination procedures is to limit the spread of contamination, reduce the levels to the greatest extent possible to protect personnel and equipment. And I went through and gave a nice table of um, EPA response teams and what they use for decontamination solution. And this is not just for scuba gear, but you've seen the pictures of the rescue divers or uh, safety divers. They come out, they go into a PVC shower they've arranged yeah. to clean out the suit. Well, they identified, they talked about decontamination solution, use against biologics, use against chemical contaminants, safety for diver skin contact, and dive gear compatibility. And the items they came out with is water, potable water, using antimicrobial soap, bleach, betadine, simple green, quantitary ammonia, ammonium, uh, TSP, which is trisodium phosphate, I think most everybody else knows what that is. Also alcohol, both ethanol and isopropyl. And then they rated them as effectiveness of very effective, effective somewhat. And then safety compatibility is not harmful, potentially harmful, harmful. And to, when you look at that, the only ones that were really good is water and soap. And then from that was uh, Simple Green. And that was a nice one right across the board. And the second nice one across the board turned out to be that ammonium, quantitary ammonium. Uh, they also had a little, little item that said, when you're mixing your compounds, do not mix your bleach with ammonia because then you're going to get chlorine gas and that's probably going to be unhealthy when you breathe it. Oh, yeah. Did make a uh, comment about trisodium phosphate. It's a cleaning agent. It's a lubricant. It's a stain remover and degreaser, but it's also used as a food additive. So when you see these things about the kids eating soap, well, what can I say? You've probably seen that lately, haven't you? The oh, issues yeah. About, yeah, the, yeah, the Tide Pods. Yeah, I, I, you know, same thing with here. Take a spoonful of cinnamon and see if you can breathe. It's, that does not make any sense to me. No. Uh, I don't think if I were 17, I would, I would try that cinnamon thing. Oh. Anyway, Blue Gold is a uh, cleaning solution. 
that has been identified as an ideal cleaner for equipment that's been submerged in contaminated water uh, because it's highly concentrated, environmentally friendly, and non-toxic, which sounds like a good deal. Uh, they have a number of clients using it to clean neoprene and rubber products, including Florida Power and Light. They've reported there is no degradation of the materials with repeated use. Blue Gold is an industrial-grade cleaner that is safer for the environment than many other products that was tested by the Compressed Gas Association. It's also endorsed for effective cleaning, compatibility, been used by NASA, and a bunch of them. Uh, it's also recommended for this purpose by Atomic Aquatics, Aqualung, Oceanic Products, Hollis, and Ziegel. And as I believe that ammonium one is the one they use for cleaning out rebreathers. And Kevin maybe can tell us on that in a little bit. Then it said, according to uh, Iowa, Iowa State University, their Center for Food Security and Public Health, in addition to chemical disinfectants, heat, light, radiation may also be appropriately used to reduce or eliminate microorganisms in the environment. They said heat is the one of the oldest physical controls against microorganisms and is fairly reliable means of sterilization. But you're not going to be putting your stuff in an autoclave or a steam bath. Uh, dry heat, flame baking, doesn't work really good. It works really good against microorganisms, but it doesn't do really good on neoprene and rubber. Uh, sunlight and UV works really good for some microorganisms um, and may have practical application for inactivating viruses, uh, mycycloplasm, bacteria, fungi. But again, doesn't work really well on your neoprene and a lot of your rubbery goods. And we're not even going to go into the aspect of uh, radiation. Freezing is a is not a reliable method of sterilization. Can help reduce the numbers of bacteria. Some microorganisms are resistant to freezing. And then I said, unfortunately, most diving equipment is not heat tolerant. Does not do well with long UV exposure, which we know. And they said, and even though you really shouldn't leave your equipment out in sunlight. Sunlight does help knock down some of the uh, bacteria. But then again, we don't have much sun here in the middle of the winter. Uh, let's see what else is good about that. It says decon your scuba equipment. It said the Navy uses a combination of products and materials to decon their personnel equipment after diving. Uh, they use modified versions of the protocols, as everybody will, based on what you're in, what's the concentration, and how badly you want the gear back. So if you find your scuba equipment has been submerged in floodwaters, it's best to assume the water is contaminated. So after donning protective clothing, meaning long pants, boots, gloves, and eye protection, same stuff you use when you're cleaning bottles with chemicals, find out what can be salvaged. It said, first remove all the equipment from your equipment bags or wherever you had it. Go ahead and dispose of any batteries, paper products, cleaning products, defog, mask cleaners, silicon spray. These have probably been contaminated and therefore effective, so toss them out. Then they say line up the remaining items, including the bags you had it in probably. Rinse everything in fresh water. Using stiff brush, clean off any kind of debris and dirt. Uh, use a nozzle, like a hose, with some pressure. Said so you can use a pressure washer on low settings, but you got to be careful what you're going to be using that on. After you rinse everything out, think about removing chemicals that might be in your equipment. And this is where they talked about using, they, they gave it two options. Option one, blue gold cleaner. And they say get a brand new plastic trash can or old one that's clean. Prepare a solution of it. and Use that to clean your gear. Most of that will get rid of oil, dirt, grease, and many chemicals. They said it's used as a cleaner for neoprene and rubber products, as well as for cleaning all metals, including air delivery systems, used in high oxygen environments. Uh, and from that, they said it's very uh, concentrated and it is safe for the environment. 
you should use a dunking method to create some agitation as you're putting your materials in, in the container. Let everything soak for 30 minutes. Remove the non-cloth items. Let all the other items soak for another 30. Then you get out and you rinse everything again, hose everything again, fill it back up with fresh water, let it soak. The second item, and probably easier to find around here, is going to be simple green cleaner. And they said basically you do the same thing. Find a clean trash can, plastic one is simple. Uh, make a cleaner solution, usually a 1 to 10 ratio, and basically do everything you just did before. I said again, the soaking afterwards, the dunking, that's a way to get rid of the, the green solution and then do a good, like you say, soak and uh, secondary cleaning. The part I liked, I said you can use bleach, but chlorine beet, bleach can damage silicon and rubber products hard on the environment. So even though you can use it because you really want to decon something, that does work. It's Streamine, S-T-E-R-A-M-I-N-E, sanitizing tablets. And they say make a solution by dissolving two tablets or a gallon of water. Turns really nice blue. And it's safe for the skin in its tablet form and when mixed with water. And they said it's the same solution used by rebreather divers for disinfecting the breathing lungs and is used to sterilize kitchen equipment, food preparation surface, and bars and respond. Yep, that's what I was taught for uh, sterilizing the rebreather yep. was using steramine. So, um, I'm using yep. a, a vinegar solution to uh, clean up the scrubber as far as getting the uh, the, uh, the, the uh, absorbent out of, the, out of the scrubber and, you know, getting it, you know, so it's not embedded in the plastic and well, in the uh, delrin anymore. But then as far as the, the lungs, just like you said, Mac, we use steramine for that. And I figured you'd have some head, you know, some feedback on that one. Now, the interesting part I thought about all of this was it said, after cleaning and deconning, deconning your scuba equipment, it's now time to have your air delivery system and buoyancy control device serviced by a qualified service. Now, a lot of us, our BCs, we can do very well on that, take another part. Regulators, maybe not so much. So the idea of having a service is not a bad idea because you've done decon it, cleaned it, you know it's good to go. Let them check it out for you. It talked about mass straps, uh, skirts, fence, snorkel, plastic retainers. Treat them with food-grade silicon spray. And it said it's important to recoat all your silicon and plastic because the disinfectant procedure dries out the materials and causes them to wear faster, so you want to get some silicon on them. It said on your bags, it talked about use net or magnet zip care. I'm not familiar with that. To clean and lubricate all the zippers, be sure to work the zippers back and forth to distribute the lubricant throughout the zipper. Uh, I've got that. It almost looks like beeswax, but it isn't. And it almost looks like solid. Um, oh, I can't even think what it is now. We get our wolves in the way I use it for my zippers. It's great. Yeah, it looks almost like uh, solid um, silicon, but it isn't. Is it, is it paraffin? Almost like it. It looks like paraffin, uh, but it's it's a little slipper, a slicker, you know, more slick than that. Hmm. Uh, under lights, I say check your rings. You've already dumped the batteries. Um, obviously, to me, a lot of ours are pressure type, so our lights should be pretty good, and there nothing should have happened to the batteries. But they're still saying check your rings, clean everything out from the external part. Uh, soft, lint-free cloth, lightly lubricate everything again with silicon grease. And if you have to, go through, go through and burnish your contacts and use contact cleaner. Dive knives, coat the blade with silicon, clips and hardware. Make sure you lubricate them with silicon spray and work the gates and slides to make them function and get rid of any kind of debris that might have been in them. 
So, yeah, well, food for thought. All good points. And the thing to stress is if, you know, somebody around here and you you just got flood, is get to it as soon as possible. Don't let it sit there for a while because you just make the situation worse. At least get it clean and rinsed out. And if you're too busy, I'm sure your dive shop will love to help uh, service your gear. Yeah, I don't think you want to have a moldy and a fungus on your BC. That would not be cool. No. I mean, you might like to green tinge or something, but still, I don't think that's good. Uh, it may be a little stylish, but yeah, I'm not. I don't necessarily want to be breathing that in. No. Well, you're just exhaling to it now and actually breathe off it there. So I know we actually, we, we had this discussion about, oh, several podcasts ago about uh, emergency procedures when you run out of air, possibly using your uh, BCD as a rebreather. Yep. And we had a discussion about that. That might give you a few more breaths there, but the real issue is with the CO2 buildup quite quickly on you there. Uh-huh. Yep. But sometime again, you know, two or three breaths can make a difference. Keep you from panicking. That's a big one. Well, do we do we have anything else, Kevin? Did you have a wreck of the week you wanted to cover? Yeah, I can give you a wreck of the week tonight. Uh, let's see if I can paste this in the chat room here. But uh, can talk about the uh, North Shore tug. I posted some pictures on my Facebook recently about this and uh, got low attention. And the uh, North Shore tug is a uh, pretty nice dive out of Saugatuck. Um it is a technical dive. The bottom's about 151. Uh, you don't actually have to go to the bottom. Uh, on my rebreather, I'm certified for 40 meters, which is actually 141 feet. So I just don't go to the bottom. You know, mud is mud is mud, you know. So I'm, I'm pretty sure the mud at 151 feet looks the same as the mud does at 40 feet. So I have no point going there. But the North Shore Tug is actually a more, a more modern sinking. It was uh, sunk back in the 80s. And I'm going to take the information for this off of uh, Michigan Sherrick Research Association's website. And the North Shore Tug, which sank in 150 feet of water in, late, in the late 1980s, is one of the best local dives in the Saugatuck area. This deep wreck is not for, not for beginners. MSRA-affiliated technical diver Todd White has documented the North Shore extensively, and MSRA presents these photos to help you plan your dive. And we have a number of photos here on the webpage about the North Shore tug. Uh, we have pictures of it, you know, before the sinking. Of course, many pictures of it after sinking. You know, if you know where to look on it, you can still find the find the name the uh, name of the boat stenciled on it there. The uh, rudder is present. The propeller looks like it's kind of buried in the sand. Uh, you know, this is a, a steel boat, so when it hit the bottom, it you know it settled pretty pretty deeply in the water there. It is. A really cool dive. Uh, you know, I dove this with Jason and Sean back in, I believe, June, and we had close to, you know, we had 75-foot visibility anyway. I mean, the boat's about 60 feet long, and you and you could see end-to-end on the boat pretty well. I do have some pictures that uh, show the entire boat. Uh, lots and lots of burbot down there. The uh, boat, like I say, it was it was intentionally sunk. Uh, no, no one, no one actually died in this wreck boat is very much intact the uh, pilot house has come off the boat but everything else is still there to my knowledge there really isn't any potential for doing penetration on the wreck just because uh, you know the only area you could get into would be the the uh, I guess the galley which is underneath the uh, pilot house and 
looking at the pictures I've seen here, you know, most of your entrances are pretty well blocked on that. It'd be a real challenge to get in there. Not to say that something that it couldn't be done, but uh, it is kind of it's certainly not recommended. But uh, it, like I say, it's a it's a real cool wreck. And one thing I'm not seeing here on MSRA's site is actually this boat does have a bit of a history. I only learned this from reading uh, Ross Richardson's book about the Westmoreland, which I recommend to anyone who has an interest in uh, you know hunting for shipwrecks or need the history for hunting for shipwrecks. And Ross does mention the uh, North Shore tug in his book. Talks about how it was actually the uh, ship of Calvin Deviney back in the 1960s. And Deviney was a uh, map maker and who made maps of shipwreck locations and sold them to fishermen and divers. Uh, there's not an awful lot known about where he got his information from or how accurate the maps were. I'm actually very curious in, in seeing one of the maps if anyone could find one. He did have a business based out of Flint, Michigan, which when I was reading the book, I did do a little bit of Google searching and found that business name is still uh, apparently you know, active in Flint, Michigan there. It was uh, Flint Explorers League or something like that. But in any event, uh, if you can get out there and if you're qualified for it, the North Shore Tug is a very cool dive. It is 150 feet down. You know, like I say, you can reach the high point on the wreck. The pilot house is torn off the boat, but that deck is still there. And I want to say that deck's right about, oh, 135-ish thereabouts. So, uh, say if you're qualified for it, this is a very cool wreck and something you can do right off our shores. Excellent. Yeah, I I, I like the pictures that you had. Uh, it wasn't quite what I was visualizing. Well, you know, those pictures you see, uh, they, I actually just took, took those with, with the GoPro. I tend to run my GoPro in video mode, and those are just stills cropped out of the video. Mm-hmm. My uh, stills didn't turn out very well when I was down there for some reason. And because of the depth, the buttons in the camera got a little bit funny. And I wasn't actually able to use it around the stern section there. I tend to keep my, my video clips kind of short. I went to stop a clip and start a, and start a clip and uh, couldn't get it. You know, apparently, my I was not able to take video around the stern section at all. So, but in any event, I got the bow. It's the important part. Well, cool. Well, let's see. Do we have anything upcoming that we want to plug? We've got to be getting really close to show season. Let's. Uh, when's our world underwater? It's over. Uh, the next one is Great Lake Shipwrecks, and that's uh, Saturday, March the third. You said that is in. Yep. Okay. That's yeah. Referring to Shipwreck Festival, put on by the Ford, Ford Seahorses in Ann Arbor, and it's a great show. Very much, very much looking forward to that one on the third. And after that, we have uh, Mysteries and Histories. That is uh, Michigan Shipwreck Research Association's program. And the date on that, I believe, is is that March 24th? Let's see if I can find that up here. I got their site right here. Yes, March 24th. And they have moved the venue on that. That is now going to be... I'm looking for this here. It's at the J.H. Miller Center, 221 Columbia in, in Holland. So it has moved. And that is uh, 7 o'clock to 9.30 p.m. on the 24th. Okay. 
Well, you guys have anything you want to plug? Well, no, I did miss you at Our World Underwater, and I did wear the uh, Scuba Obsessed t-shirt. Oh, thank you. Get a little PR in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, there was just no way I was going to get a chance to go. Uh, robot season this year seems to be... We're, we were ahead of last year, but it just seems more hectic, and I, I haven't quite figured it out. Maybe when the season's over, I'll look back and go, oh, that's why. But uh, yeah, I'll be heading to Flint this weekend. Uh, for another practice competition. We had one last weekend. We have another one this weekend. And then in uh, two weeks, we'll have our first uh, actual season event. We'll be at St. Joe at the the high school there. And then we've got another one uh, four weeks later, which will be up in the Grand Rapids area, Forest Hills. And hopefully the team does well, but uh, we'll see. Yeah. I, uh, there's one upcoming item that uh, would be interesting to see how many people actually participate, but that's the Nautical Archaeology Training Workshop and Dinner. Mm-hmm. That's going to be April 28th and the 29th. That's two of the three days. And then that'll be in May for the practical. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like that could be a very interesting time. But you're, you know, you'd have to make your plans in advance, and you're going to be spending the night down there. So you'd be there Friday night. You start in the morning on Saturday. Uh, they provide a breakfast and a, and a dinner. Uh, cost of the course would be $170, and I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't have a couple of people from the club actually go to it. Nice. That'll be good. And, yeah, and- we put it on the club site. So if anybody else wants to look at it and see what's available, uh, go for it. And how about you, Kevin? Uh, things to plug? <laughs> Well, I want to encourage our uh, listeners to uh, support your local libraries. There's a wealth of information there, which you, you just can't find on the Internet. Also, uh, support your local dive shops. Uh, we all like to get those bargains online, but those bargains online are, aren't going to fill your scuba tanks or service your regulators. Very good. Well, I think we are getting to that time of the show. i got to queue up. I had it, I had, had it all ready. And uh, now I need stall music. Hey, I could plug a few more things for you if you like. Sure, you sure, need some stall music. Um, I'm looking at the Michigan Maritime Museum. That's the museum we have here in South Haven. And they do have some upcoming events. One of their events is a direct competition, it looks like, with MSRA's Mysteries and Histories. But on March 24th, their World War II Lecture Series, Recovering History, World War II pilot training on Lake Michigan with Speaker Troy Thrash, President and CEO of the Air Zoo. That's on March 24th. And April 18th, part of their World War II lecture series, Lake Huron Red Tails, the Tuskegee Airmen Project with Speaker Wayne Lasardi, underwater archaeologist. And then they have other things coming up as well. Looks like they have the Blessing of the Fleet on May 25th. And then we get into their summer season with... Uh, Antique and Classic Boat Show on June 16th. Walk to Fitness on May 26th. All kinds of stuff going on here at the Maritime Museum. What was the one on the Red Tails? Underwater? I didn't get the relationship between Underwater and the Red Tails. Uh, Lake Huron Red Tails. The Tuskegee Airmen Project with Speaker Wayne Lusardi, Underwater Archaeologist. I guess uh, there's some connection. I mean, with the Tuskegee Airmen or anything to do with, with Lake Huron? I don't know. I, I just know that uh, we, not we, uh, we, I keep saying we, last year the um, refurbished the Red Tail, one of the last ones, 
over here in Benton Harbor. And oh, yeah. I got to watch it on its uh, first initial flight after being updated and painted again. Mm-hmm. And that, that was quite an awesome aircraft that really looked good. And as a side note, they just finished up on a Crusader the same way. They just finished redoing that one. I mean, that's two in a row of very curious aircraft that they've been working on here over in Benton Harbor. But I was just curious when you said red tails. Okay. Well, I I think I've I've got one. I've got a few in the in the, the backup in case this one doesn't quite work out. But uh, two two fortune tellers meet. The first one says we're going to have a hot summer again. The second one sighs happily. Yes, it reminds me of the summer of twenty ninety two. Twenty. Yeah, the fortune tellers. Yeah. Okay. I gotcha. Ha ha. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, I I think maybe we'll uh, we'll do another one here. At a job interview, Mrs. Lobster, what do you consider to be your greatest weakness? Honesty, she replies. Really? I don't believe that's a weakness at all. And I don't give a rat fart about your stupid opinion. Okay, I like that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, we, we said they were bad. So on that note, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. And have a good time doing it.